NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Happy, 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 joy, joy, joy. I've been scaling the walls in my office and swimming like a seahorse in my home for the last few weeks. Why? Well, this is the right time, and I couldn't be more excited, like way too excited, about today's show. My name is Brian Ripley-Crandall, and I am the director of the Connecticut Writing Project at Fairfield University. It is an absolute pleasure to host another episode with the director of national programs, Tanya Baker. But I have a question for her before we begin. And if you were any sea animal, what would you be? What sea animal speaks to you the most? Brian, I'm actually completely surprised given how good of friends we are and how often we work together that you didn't know this about me. Sometimes in group meetings, I like to use the prompt, what is something that everyone who knows you knows you love um, as an icebreaker? And my answer is always octopus. My nieces keep a running count of how many representations of octopus there are in our house. And though I don't know what the answer is, I do know it's more than 64, including this lovely scarf. But importantly, I see what you're doing with all that language. And I can attest to everyone listening today that Brian has been singing the praises about our guest today for several months. He has found a way to drop into every conversation the fact that we all need to read Natasha Bowen's Skin of the Sea, a debut novel published by Random House Children's Books. Not only do we have Natasha Bowen with us for the show today, but we also have the one and only Dr. Stephanie Tolliver, who, brought to, <clears throat> who we brought to the right time because of her expertise in science fiction, fantasy, and Afrofuturism. We have a devil whammy of brilliance in the studio. Welcome to the show, Natasha and Stephanie. Hi. Thanks so, for having me. Oh, so good to have you. So those who know me best understand that when I get stoked about a book or a brilliant mind of a writer, I become really, really, really obsessive, like, like really obsessive. Like every classroom I go to, every teacher I talk to, every you know, presentation I do, I find a way to slip in skin of the sea because I think it is one of the most fantastic, imaginative, brilliant, historical texts that I've read in a long time. And I cannot, I hope that they make this a movie. And I don't say that of all books, but I hope to see this one day. And maybe I can like have a part in it. We'll see. Anyway, uh, I have the great fortune of introducing Natasha. So Natasha Bowen is a writer, a teacher, and a mother of three children. Woo -woo, parenthood. She is of Nigerian and Welsh descent and lives in Cambridge, England, where she grew up. Natasha studied English and creative writing at Bath Spa University before moving to East London, where she taught for 10 years. Her debut book was inspired by her passion for mermaids and African history. She is obsessed with Japanese and German stationery and spends a stupid amount of time, or a stupid amount of money, not time, probably money <laughs> on notebooks, time in them, which where she features, um, which she always is featuring on Instagram. So you could follow her there. When she is not composing, she's reading. She's um, watched over carefully by Milk and Honey, her cat and dog, and she hopefully is, is, is thinking there might be a sequel coming out sometime soon because uh, this guy wants to read it as soon as possible. And I'm going to be honest here, I actually was so nervous. I was pacing the hallway before the show started because I really am so excited to have not, on, not only Natasha, but Stephanie as well. And so um, I look so forward to this interview. Handing it to you. 
I was already in love with your work, Natasha. And then I found out your cat and dog are named Milk and Honey, and you have an obsession with notebooks. And it was all over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while you fan guy Natasha, though, I'm going to fan girl Stephanie Tolliver. <clears throat> when you said we were going to feature Skin of the Sea on the show, you quickly followed up with, we have to have the perfect interviewer for this episode. And sure enough, complete success. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Stephanie Tolliver. Stephanie Renee Tolliver is an assistant professor of literacy and secondary humanities at the University of Colorado Boulder, whose scholarship centers the freedom dreams of black youth and honors the historical legacy that black imaginations have had and will have on activism and social change. She is the author of Recovering Black Storytelling and Qualitative Research in Darkened Story Work. And now it's my pleasure to turn the show over to Stephanie who will introduce a writing prompt for tonight's episode. If you're watching this recorded, you may stop and uh, participate in that writing prompt if you choose. Stephanie? Yeah, so when I came to thinking about this writing prompt, I think the first thing I was trying to figure out is like how to get us into this amazing book. And so, I thought that like one of the big things that happens is a mistake. And so the writing prompt is think about a time when you made a mistake that affected other people. What was that mistake? How did it affect others? And what did you do to fix it? Oh, that's good. I do we're gonna, love we're gonna sign off, but I can tell you, and I'll leave you in suspense that the, the big mistake of my life led me to where I am today. So yeah, see ya. <laughs> All right. So I'm super excited to just talk to you today. I, I mean, I love us all things Black speculative fiction. That's pretty much the only thing I read unless someone tells me I have to read something else. And so I appreciated when Brian reached out and he was just like, this book, you're going to love it. And I hadn't heard of it yet. Or no, I had heard of it, but it was still on my TBR list. And I was like, well, I've got to move it up then. And so then I read it and I was like, oh, that deserved to be moved to the top of the list. It was just so amazing. And so I think one question that I have for you, but also a question that I think I have for so many writers is why this story and why now? I think that I, I've always loved magic and fairies and mermaids. They were like my favorite books growing up. Um, favorite themes, I think as well, I wanted to escape. So books for me, I wanted to center around, you know, what wasn't necessarily within our world. But I think that when it comes to writing, there's a, a, a typical um, piece of advice that people give, which is write what you would want to read. And that really is what happened in terms of, I loved The Little Mermaid growing up. Um, and then as I'm older and I'm studying more and I'm teaching and I'm a parent, I wanted, to, wanted there to be more stories available that represented myself and the people that I grew up with. Um, and my family. And I think that I, I'd read so many stories with just one version of magical beings that, um, yeah, I thought to myself, I, I really wanted to create something that was representative of something else. And I think to mix history and spiritual beliefs with magical beings, just it just meshed all together perfectly. Yeah. Most definitely. And I think 
from what you just said about like mixing not only magic with history, because I think that there's sometimes this idea that you can have like one genre or another, you can have one thing, like you can have magic or mermaids or something like that, but you can't have anything real as part of it. And I think part of my research is saying like, we can have so many things and kind of do this hybridity of genre in our work and bring in that history or argumentation or whatever. And so I'm thinking about like, in the beginning of the book, you kind of mentioned how history helps to frame the story. So can you tell a little bit about like what your research process was like and also like how did that influence the overall story? I think that when I was, when I was um, first thinking of writing this story and thinking about Black mermaids and having a story centered on them, it was important for me to not just have them um, as Black, Black mermaids in the same setting that we've, we have other mermaid stories. So when you're finding out about the origins and people's beliefs in them, um, it was interesting to see the beliefs all around the world actually, but with a focus on Africa and in West Africa and how those beliefs evolved and the myths that evolved because of the transatlantic slave trade. So it's framed in that time period, but the focus is not on that, it's the origin and you know um, a reason for the conflict in the story, but it's not the focus is on magic and courage. And I think that learning about um, black gods and goddesses, Orishas, and the different beliefs that people have in terms of how they how they adapted and changed because of what was happening at that time in history. So Yamoja was said to left the streams um, and and rivers to follow the first enslaved, and there were different beliefs of her. Uh, wrecking the slave ships, um, offering the enslaved comfort, and some believe that she returned the souls home. And it was that bit, that kind of merging of West African belief um, and how it was changing because of what was happening. That's the bit that really caught me to kind of try and bring that alive, um, but in a way that spoke of courage and magic and didn't focus so much on the darkness of that time. Yeah, most definitely. I'm thinking about like this whole idea of magic and black girl magic as kind of this literal something, or I guess not a literal something, but in the story, like she is a magical being, Simi is a magical being. How does Simi kind of represent this black girl magic in different ways? I think that she, we see her, we, we see her struggling with who she is and what she believes in and, and the right thing to do whilst keeping that sense of self and, and trying to remember, we see her remember, trying to remember who she was um, and keeping that at the forefront of who she is and why she's doing what she's doing in the book. I think that there's, um, we don't always want the focus to be on struggle. We want it to be on, on, on love and happiness as well. And I think there's a certain magic in finding yourself and, and understanding who you are and what your identity is and then staying true to that. Um, and then doing everything you can to, I suppose, to pursue and to make sure that what you're doing is the right thing. Yeah, I love how you're framing it, because I think that so often and it's been critiqued most definitely. But like when people are talking about black black girl magic, it's all like all the good stuff, all the love and the joy and the happiness, but forgetting all the struggle, too. And I think that with Simi and with what you're saying now, it's just like 
it's more like all, all of the aspects of black girlhood, all of the aspects of black womanhood are magical, not just the triumphs and not just the excellence and the love and joy, but also like the struggles and the things that we go through in life. And I really appreciate how you're like framing that. It's making you think of like just so many things right now. I think the struggles are a part of that, aren't they? They're a part of the, the good bits would only, they've only happened because of the struggle that you, I mean, life is rarely plain sailing and, and, the, the sweeter bits are made even sweeter by the struggle that we've gone through and, and overcome whether that, you know, however that works out, that that um, tenacity and, and making sure that you're pushing through and your mindset is is strong um, and you are, you know who you are and, and yeah, you're just pushing forward to make sure you're the best version. Yeah. And I see that kind of like coming up out, like coming out of Simi, right? Like, she is trying to figure out who she is and the best version of herself and whether the past is part of that or whether this new being that she has become is, I don't know, supposed to take precedent. And I think about like, I don't know, something that kind of struck me as you were talking is thinking about like how our past influences our present, influences our future, and how some of that is like, even though she's in this, not future, but in this new body kind of, in this new position, she's still thinking about that past and how like you can never let go of it. Like, I don't it's know. Always, yeah, it's always there. And I think we also, you know, we're also trying to, we all make mistakes. And I think her, her you know, sometimes the mistakes that we make are come from a good place because we're not necessarily informed about the choices that we're going to make or we didn't see something coming and I think the book explores that you know we're all going to make mistakes but it's then it's then your actions after that and and your true beliefs and how they push you through to deal with it yeah and you know I think we don't think about often enough that like some mistakes are really like they didn't come from bad places I mean they're mistakes but the way that they're often framed is like, oh, this was bad. You did something bad, so you have to go and fix it. But I think when I'm looking at Simi, like she saved someone and the saving of someone was a mistake. And in so, in so many ways, we make so many mistakes that came from good places, just like you said. And I think that could be something for readers is to think about like how Simi shows the struggle of everyone. Like it's not, she is this black mermaid who is existing alongside this magical landscape, but she's so real. Exactly. She's still, there's that humanity bit of her. No one's perfect. And, you know, we learn from our mistakes. As, as long as we learn from them, then, you know, they're an important part of life. And I think that's what we see her dealing with and trying to, and trying to make sure that she's doing. Yeah, I definitely, that, that definitely just sticks out to me. And I think that readers will really appreciate that, especially because I think about how often um, a lot of teachers might say like, well, we want to make sure that the stories that we teach are universal, but then those universal stories end up not including Black girls like Simi. <laughs> and so when I think about the way that you're writing Simi, it's like the things that she's dealing with are universal. And exactly. some of it, yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, you said that you wanted to kind of escape and move away from this world when you were writing, but also like to bring in that history. And I think a lot about like how speculative authors do do that, where it's like a sort of escape, but also taking into account some of the realities that we are facing or have faced in the past. And so I'm wondering, like, what sort of escape did this book provide for you? 
I think the escape, and I wouldn't actually say it was an escape, I would say it's another sort of a doorway. I think that we, you know, black history doesn't start with slavery and I don't, and, and while there might be kind of, you know, historical texts that, that talk about that or speak about that, it's not, I don't find it's often explored in, in fiction um, and in a way that actually weaves in historical elements of, of how it was. So that was really important to me to show, to show parts of West Africa um, with how amazing they were, you know, their architecture and the mathematics and the fact that when the Portuguese arrived there, they were amazed by street lamps and, you know, well let, laid out cities. And, and the fact that in Europe at that time, especially in London, um, it was nowhere near on that level. And I think that that's something that's not represented a lot in fiction. Um, I've read quite a lot of kind of magical and historical books set in London um, around like maybe the 16th century, but I didn't really, I haven't really come across many that are set in other places that are at least dry, moving towards being factually correct. So I think that was really important to me to have that, to have that research and have um, that culture and, and those lands represented in the way that they deserve, in the way that they were, um, and making sure that people see themselves um, and learn from that culture and that history um, and, and learn of the, the knowledge of astronomy um, and, and fractals, which I lost myself in for a month for research. Um, but yeah, it's, it was having all of that. And I think it's probably wanting to have read stories like that when I was growing up that made me put as much as I did in. Um, and I think it's really important for everyone. It's definitely important for to, to see yourself in those stories and to and to have that you know we I think we have an association with Africa as primitive um, mm -hmm. and I think that's and and it's an association that needs to be broken and I hope that stories like this will go some way to doing that. Yeah, I've talked a little bit about how like stories are telescopes, and I feel like your book kind of provides us another way of looking into that far distance, like way back when, and even currently across oceans and lands to see the ways that like, to see the things that we weren't seeing, see the things that were so near that we just couldn't see because we didn't have the right lens. And so I think that what you're doing is kind of bringing in that lens that we were missing in a lot of different ways. Like I didn't know anything about fractals. And so like, I was looking up, I was like, what are these patterns? And so like, like there was the big part about like um infinity and things like that and I was just like I didn't even think of this and so like I went and I'm not a math person at all but I was like let me go and look these things up and try to figure out like the things that I was missing right yeah I, I lost a month of my life to fractals and I hate maths as well but I was just so I was so amazed and I was it's the same thing there were so many things um, so many things that I already knew, but that I learned as well writing this book. I'm like, why didn't I know this? And how many, you know, I speak to other people, they didn't know it either. If a few maybe knew, a, a, you know, small bits, but yeah, it's it's all like, why didn't why didn't I already know this? So yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you lost yourself to fractals as well. <laughs> I did, and I'm I'm thinking because like you were a teacher, right? So like, was there anything in terms of like putting all of this knowledge and history into this fictional book? was there anything you were trying to like teach readers or teach your students in ways that maybe they didn't get in your classrooms or anything like that? 
I think the history is an obvious one because um, growing up in England, we only really learn about the British Empire and um, with a spin on how amazing it was. Um, and we only really learn about the economy of the slave trade. And it's very um, focused on the Caribbean and America rather than the very beginning and, and how it started and then who and how they joined in. Um, and I think that one of the main things is for children, particularly black children to see themselves in stories. I've taught a lot of children and when they're writing their own stories, they're not writing characters that look like themselves or including names that might be in their family or their community. They're using the standard names because children always, that we use text to teach them how to write. And if the texts are not varied, they only learn one way. And they didn't actually, we had a, I remember having um, a whole session about what we were writing in a story and, and we were coming up with characters' names and they were coming up with the same, same standard names that they do. I'm like, well, so what about, why, why are we not gonna use Folashade? Why would we not, why would we not, why would not use, you know, Adi, why would we not use that? And they were like, oh, and they, one child said to me, oh, can we? And that, yeah, I, that kind of, that was just before I was writing this story and that kind of broke my heart a little bit that because, and it's a, yeah, it, it's such an obvious thing, but if you don't see yourself, how do you know? It's almost like you need that permission sometimes in order to do that. So I hope that people see themselves, but also everyone else learns. And I think it's, you know, we all, I love learning from books. I love being exposed to so much different cultures and religions and, and, and different locations. And I think it can only be, it can only be amazing to have more books like that, to widen everything. So everyone's learning and everyone sees themselves. Most definitely. Like that broke my heart, like the whole <laughs> asking permission to write yourself into stories. But then I think about, I mean, all the books that I remember from middle and high school were predominantly like white people in futures, white people in fantasy worlds, white people in the present, white people in the past. And so I don't think I read or was assigned one story that had a black kid in it at all. I think the only one was To Kill a Mockingbird, which was um, a Black person, but they don't, they're not the focus of the story. They're just in it. <laughs> and so I think about like the stories that I wrote when I was younger and I used to write these little mysteries and the main character's name was Stacy and a little white girl. <laughs> and she had like missing socks and had to find them. And like, I never wrote a story that had a black girl in it. It wasn't until the book that I have out now that I even thought, you know, let's go with it. Black main character, let's do it. So I appreciate how you're bringing in like this idea of like, I think about um, Rudine Sims Bishop's metaphor of windows, mirrors and doors and you're providing those mirrors and more doorways and windows into other worlds that maybe students aren't getting in traditional schooling yeah completely I think that was a thing that I always I, I hate being told what to do to be fair <laughs> at school <laughs> to be at school I would I would be researching other things behind my textbook um but learning learning about the history that they taught me but then also doing my own learning but that's not always possible um for everyone if you don't have access to the right books or or even the internet at home so yeah it's important to have that range yeah 
I can imagine, like, I don't know why this is now a thing in my brain, but I can imagine just students across the globe and adults across the globe who are reading this book, who are going to get lost in a month of fractals. Like that's going to be like the new thing. It's going to be a fractal fan club. Yeah, that's because I do like I do think that there's so much richness like the story is amazing just in general I was like oh what's gonna happen next what's gonna happen with Eshu is he's going to really get them is he like I had I'm not gonna tell the twist or whatever but like I was like I don't trust this person but like there's there's that part the fictional part that's really great but that the learning that is embedded but it's also like enjoyable learning for lack of a better way of phrasing it yeah, I'm trying not to give away certain bits now because I was just about to say something about fractals um, and hair. But yeah, I won't I won't spoil anything. But yeah, it's it's and it's so interesting to see how it all integrates and how how the importance of different things comes together. Um, I can't really say much more than that, otherwise I'll ruin a part of the book. But yeah, it's I've been trying to figure out, like, how am I going to ask you questions about this one thing without, you know, actually ruining it for people? Um, but either way. One of the things I was wondering about is like thinking of how you blended these genres of like fantasy elements and history and things like that. Like, how did you do it? <laughs> like, how did you make that learning and that knowledge something that's enjoyable to pick up some, and something that people don't want to put down? I, again, I think it's just, I wrote the, the story that I wanted to read. I think so often we can get caught up in what we think is going to be the next big thing or what we think other people want to read. And I literally just, yeah, I, I, I wanted to read it. And the more that I was learning about, you know, the, the meshing of, 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 of the West African beliefs of mermaids and, and how it evolved, it just, it almost seemed to just write itself. I know that sounds um, cliche maybe, but it was, yeah, it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't not write it yeah I I think it's like it's one of those kind of callings it seems like because like the way that it's written I'm like there I don't I have never seen a class that taught anybody to write as beautifully as this I don't even know how because I was teaching full-time at the time with three children that should tell you like it, it took me just over I think about 16 months to write so yeah it was that's how much I went to bed sleeping about it and and I woke up thinking about it so that's yeah that it was the passion I think for all for, for the mermaids and the history that just pushed me on I love it and I'm thinking about what you said earlier about like students kind of writing what they are you kind of writing what you wish you could see and kind of how that calling kind of draw like drew you to this story in ways that I think that passion, how could it be cultivated in classrooms? And I, I wonder like, how might we do this bridging of like history and English and math and all of that into a story to help students to find that same passion to where they're thinking about their writing when they go to sleep and imagining what they're gonna write next when they wake up. Cause I don't think we do that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there are, it's, it's very, I don't know how it is in America, but it's. It's, it's very prescriptive in England. So it's very, you know, you need to start your sentence, you start your paragraph with an adverbial phrase. And it's like, I don't think I could do that now. It would really just stop the way that I'm writing. So I think, yeah, it's, it's I think it, the same as for reading, I think it's pleasure first and foremost. And that that is about the, just the story that you want to tell. It might not be, you know, it might not even be about the prompt or, or the theme 
because we end up having themes in England, you know, you're going to write about, um, you're going to write about the Victorians, but maybe you don't want to write about the Victorians or, or you have to write about the Victorians and, and the Industrial Revolution. And, and that's, yeah, it's, it's dry and boring sometimes if that's not what you're connecting with so dry <laughs> like we do the same it's very prescriptive where it's like we got like graphic organizers where it's like you need to put in your thesis statement these three things and then your paragraphs need to follow the three things in your thesis statement please have it in this specific order and so it does kind of it's so dry and takes the joy out of that writing and when I think about reading it's like here is this book you must deconstruct this text your goal is not to enjoy it or to read for pleasure or to find ways to talk to others about it your job is to find the theme find allusions write an analytic essay about it and the end and so I just I, I appreciate it yeah it's just that you've lost you've lost them I think straight away they're doing it they, you know it's prescriptive but yeah they've lost the passion it's just gone yeah so Tanya and I popped back in, I think probably a little bit too early because we were like, we were anticipating, is this conversation, like, are they, are they ready for us to come back? Are they not? And then I was like listening and then I was just totally engrossed in the last part of your conversation. And I'm like, okay, I'm, yeah, I like have so many things going through my brain, including the fact that like, I'm not a fantasy reader. I guess Harry Potter kind of got me in there a little bit. And I was always obsessed with the way Double Dory took his wand at night and then took all of his ideas and put in the pensive, the ones he wanted to keep. And, and I'm, I'm being serious. When I did my dissertation at Syracuse University, in order to sleep at night, I had to metaphorically take a wand and I would just put it under my bed. So my ideas would be there in the morning. And I'd come, I'd, first thing I'd do is imagine, I'd grab that sack and I'd put it back in my head and I'd start writing again. And I was, and I was thinking that you, we need that, you know, especially if you're a creative type, which our schools doesn't encourage. Um, and the other thing I, I loved when Stephanie said, you know, stories are telescopes, because it reminded me of, of this piece I read from an ESL writer who talked about stories are telescopes, mirrors and microscopes. And, that, and that's what's so amazing about Skin of the Sea is that it's, it's, it's the past, but it's the future of writing, because you learn so much about history, you learn so much about culture, you learn so much about being a human being, and you learn so much about the cruelty of the human species in our history. And you start to think like, wait a second, why was Ariel the mermaid by Disney, you know, made this Hans Christian Andersen, you know, prototype, what other variations of these tales are told, who gets to tell the tales? And, and like, why do some young people need permission to be written into the story? Well, if that's a question kids are having today, that's our Western history. They weren't allowed to be part of this story. And that is one of the reasons why we decided like the right time needs to be about more, more writers and more stories and, and, and more representation so that it matters in, in the vernacular of all readers and writers. Okay, that was my little soapbox. That's not what I wanted to do. I know that Stephanie has a final prompt. <laughs> Yeah. If I can share my screen and she can share it with us. Let's see. Okay. So I, I appreciate Brian's kind of like intro into this because <laughs> the, question, the writing question is when you were little, what was your favorite Disney or children's movie whose stories were present and whose stories were missing 
in that film? And I created that question after um, reading the author's note at the end where um, Natasha talks about The Little Mermaid. And like, I used to love The Little Mermaid as well. That was one of my favorites and I watched it all the time. And I think about the new Little Mermaid Disney film that's coming out with Halle Bailey as the Little Mermaid. And I'm wondering like what the changes are going to be. Are they going to go into Mami Wata and other like black mermaids or are they just going to put Halle in the regular white Ariel's position and do the same story over again? And what does that mean? And so that's how I came up with that prompt. And I'm really excited to know what people write from it. Excellent. Yeah, well, Natasha and Stephanie, like I was, I, I have, a, it's funny, it's fractiles. I have a mathematical notebook with little boxes. I don't, that's what I pulled off my shelf. I filled up like seven, eight pages of notes and more so because the scholarship that Stephanie does and the writing that is, is being done in Skin and Skin of the Sea is really where we historically I think we need to be. It's it's so ahead of the times, but then so behind the times because it has been missing for so long. And um, I, you know, as a reader and a self-proclaimed nerd, I'm just so thankful that there's finally a book like this out there that I can bring to teachers and push their thinking and I can bring to kids to push their thinking and I can bring it to families to say, wait a second, like, what are you, what are you reading to your children? And what, are, what is, why are they being invited into the story and others are not? Maybe your kids need to read this as well. So <sighs> great show. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I think this is a great show and we've talked on um, all of these um, intellectual levels about the purpose and the importance of this book. And I just wanna also just say how much I love Simi and how much girls everywhere are going to be so happy to carry her with them in their heads and think, be able to ask themselves, what would Simi do? <laughs> So thank you, Natasha, for um, bringing her to life for us. And thank you, Stephanie, for really helping us um, contextualize this book and its importance and um, have this great conversation, which I can't wait to share with teachers about what's on their bookshelves and why and what's missing and what kids get to write and why. Um, thank you also to always my last job to say thank you um to everybody uh natasha stephanie brian as always it's such a pleasure to co-host this with you but thank you listeners um if you are um, new to the right time you came in at an amazing moment and you should run right now and buy skin of the sea before you listen to this conversation although there are really practically no spoilers people were very careful Good job on that. Um, if you don't want to miss any more Right Times and you shouldn't want to miss a single one, please join us, um, sign up for our newsletter, go to nwp.org, sign up for our newsletter, um, or join us in the Right Now Teacher Studio where we'll be talking about this show for days, I suspect. Um, you can join us at studio.nwp.org and, um, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, everyone. NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP.